everyone, and welcome back to Climate Conversations with Irish Doctors for the Environment. Today, we are delighted to be hosting Professor Hannah Daly on the podcast. Hannah is a professor in sustainable energy and energy systems modelling at University of Cork, before which she worked at the International Energy Agency. Hannah's research and lectures focus on modelling and developing sustainable pathways for the energy system, encompassing energy access, climate change and air pollution. Over recent years, she has provided a much-needed voice of science and reason in the often emotionally charged and polarising debates on key issues in Ireland such as uh, carbon budgets, agriculture, data centres, renewable energy and others on our path to net zero. One of the underlying principles of Irish Doctors for the Environment is to make clear that the climate crisis is a health crisis. If 40 degree summers, water shortages and crop failures across Europe have not made that clear, it seems pending winter blackouts may well do. I'm Sean Owens. And I'm Callum Swift. And we are delighted to have you on the Climate Conversations podcast, Hannah. Thank you. Delighted to be here. So, Hannah, your expertise, I feel, has probably never been more in demand than now. This is uh, incredibly timely. Uh, this summer we've seen, as uh, Cal mentioned, a combination of these escalating climate-related shocks, and such as droughts and wildfires, and then combined with the war in Ukraine, they have this huge instability of food prices and fuel prices. I mean, many people are probably looking towards this winter with you know really serious and valid concerns so with the government recently announcing a review into the nation's energy supply crisis could you just maybe give us a little overview of the situation for energy in ireland you know, where does most of our power come from and why is this suddenly such a, a huge problem Anna? yeah thanks it's it's um it's 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 a really complex issue the kind of intersecting um challenges of climate, the climate crisis, um, the geopolitical situation and the war in Ukraine and Ireland's, I suppose, where we find our, our uh, electricity situation this, this, um, this winter, they're all sort of independent problems that I think we, we've been failing to really grapple with and, and, uh, and, and we, we might face some, some very serious consequences. Um, so I suppose in, in short, to, to take, taking uh, th- that last issue, which is the, uh, the topic that's, that's making headlines this week, which is the insecure electricity supply, which um, you know, we're being warned of blackouts this winter. Um, this is Ireland's, I suppose, <laughs> own self-made uh, energy crisis. It's, it's very much independent from um, the, the gas, the grass uh, issues with, with Ukraine. Um, uh, air grid and and other bodies who who kind of manage our electricity grid and and kind of plan our electricity system have been warning for the last number of years that um uh there is a very strong growth in electricity demand which has been driven by data centers so uh, Ireland has decided to become a hub for for data centers uh, over the last number of years um and they're they're huge hugely energy consuming but at the same time, our um, energy supply is not keeping up with with the huge demand. Now, if we were kind of a typical country in uh, mainland Europe, which is, was connected, you know, to all the other countries uh, in in the kind of European grid, this wouldn't be such a problem. We could just 
you know, for a couple of years, buy more electricity from neighboring countries. But we're, we've got a kind of a unique electricity grid in that it is um, relatively isolated from other countries. We have to kind of produce most of what we consume uh, kind of second by second here in Ireland. The second kind of feature of our grid is that it's uh, it's highly dependent on, on wind energy, which is great. So we've decarbonized electricity uh, very substantially over the last decade because the wind industry has been so successful. Um, but we need firm capacity uh, to you know, to back up wind when it's not blowing. So right now it's a very calm day and it's likely that there's coal and, and gas being burnt um, at, at, at these plants. But the issue is that old firm capacity, so older money point peat plants and older gas plants um, are being retired for environmental reasons and economic reasons. Um, and new planned gas plants, kind of modern gas plants, which are necessary to, to back up wind um, and, and to supply that growing energy electricity demand. Um, the the market has not kind of been successful in uh, encouraging the development or, or, or basically you know, building more uh, more gas plants to, to replace those. And now I would normally say any new fossil fuel infrastructure is a really bad idea, but I do. Um, I do think that those gas plants um, are really urgent um, for, for, for because electricity system and sorry, I'm going on a bit, but the electricity no, no, system really is good, really yeah. unique. Yeah, the electricity system is really unique, even though it, it only accounts for about 20 percent of the of the energy that we that we consume um, in, in, in Ireland. Um, you know, it is it is it's absolutely necessary. The electricity system is necessary to grow because it's the main way that we can decarbonize heating and transport. Heat and transport each account for roughly 40% of our energy demand. So cars, trucks, uh, and, and heating homes and, and, and heat, giving heat for industry. You know, we need to both decarbonize electricity and grow electricity production in order to de- decarbonize other sectors. So um, we're really finding ourselves in a very sticky situation because we simply don't, uh, you know, the AirGrid and, and the Commission for the Regulation of Utilities have warned that this winter there's significant risk of, of blackouts, especially at those at those peak demand hours, you know, that, that f- you know, five, six, seven o'clock in the, uh, in the winter when everybody comes home and, and sticks on, on the kettle and, and cooks their dinner. Um, so the, we're going to have to take some extraordinary measures to, to, to deal with that. Thank you. That's a great overview. I think it's important also and not often emphasize the difference between electricity and heating and that both need to be decarbonized, but they are two separate things. And I can kind of envision quite uh, significant public um, discourse happening this winter if they are blackouts and things. And, and do, do you see that there's going to be a um, People are going to point their finger at renewable energies and and use these as an example of why they don't work and why we we need to have fossil fuels long into the future. Yeah, I, and I suppose the public discourse on this is is really um, it's 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 going to grow. Um, and again, there's 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 three intersecting things. There's there's climate and emissions. There is um, security of energy supply so that the lights stay on, and then energy prices. Um, so. You know, I, th- I think it's th- this this risk of blackouts uh, because of of an underinvestment in gas supply really doesn't have anything has very little to do with the with the price issue um, or with the climate issue. It is it is somehow basically, you know, the market wasn't well designed um, and it's not clear who has a responsibility for that. I think the government is undertaking a review to see 
why you know why I think the ESB pulled out of um you know a, um um a large generator that it had it had built and you know why it pulled out and um and why the capacity market didn't I suppose deliver uh, the capacity that it needed and it will be definitely a, a delicate uh, kind of public engagement campaign and and there has to be there has to be a sense that we're all in this together right so if the public see these huge power hungry data centers being built and it's not clear what the economic or social benefits of those data centers are and at the same time the government is asking households to reduce their energy use or it's putting up the tariff on peak time electricity use for people with smart meters um you know with without it clearly being fair there's going you know the government are going to lose the room maybe they already have um and and people are you know i think i think for example um the 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 you know, the response to the the covid-19 pandemic kind of showed that people are willing to take extraordinary measures but only if there's trust in institutions and that there's a sense that we're all in it together that that nobody's kind of getting away getting away with it um so you know that this is like i don't kind of blame data centers uh for this problem they were you know responding to um a government enterprise strategy um to, to locate here we have a good climate for data centers and we're obviously a tech hub um but simply we we don't have the electricity infrastructure to to cope with the huge demand um uh, and, and the strain on the grid and they will um limit our ability to decarbonize um uh, heat and transport as well because we really need to use that you know that 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 growth and renewable energy um that needs to go into decarbonizing heat and transport not to sort of be eaten up by growing uh, demand also it's not really clear what these what the data centers are doing i mean of course right now you know this this podcast is being recorded on a data center we need to digitize the economy of course um but also you know th- there's huge privacy around what they're doing um you know there's an awful lot of kind of machine learning and and, and targeted advertising and so on i th- i think the data centers themselves probably have to be a lot more open about you know their environmental impact what they're what they're doing and whether you know how necessary these things are for the irish economy or for for the sort of for the tech economy to survive is you know because that's essential for public trust I think um, you you wrote a really great article um, a few months ago in the Irish Times um, about the um, need to kind of shift away from energy supply uh, issues to demand and reducing demand. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I think it was titled like how to reassess what is sufficient for a good life. And, you know, you talk about Mm -hmm. public engagement. I wonder whether we need to have a kind of more honest public discussion about the amount of energy that we need to use in order to have a fulfilling and, and yeah absolutely healthy and, and, and one happy of the really, really hard things about climate change and energy is that a lot of it is just being created by normal people going about our daily lives we just have an extraordinary energy intensive society i mean if something like the I do this this um this uh, problem with with energy engineering students that that I, that I lecture um you know the the amount of work that someone can physical work that we could do in a day you know digging or kind of moving stuff like that the average person could do in a day it's equivalent to the to the energy contained in 2 teaspoons of oil you know by by basically by by exploiting yeah by exploiting kind of fossil fuels it it's it's enable this explosion in human activity and an influence on the environment and now the climate as, as as we're aware 
and it's an, it's enabled the industrial revolution and, and all modern civilization is dependent on this extremely energy intensive uh, fuels. Uh, the great news is that we have, you know, renewables are, are now the cheapest form of electricity in history. So they're, and, and EVs are great and so on, but, but they also, uh, it's, it's uh, analysis suggests that we simply can't shift to different technologies, to low carbon technologies quickly enough um, to, to meet our Paris Agreement commitments uh, in Ireland. Um, you know, there's simply too much inertia in the system. And so I think, you know, I, I don't like talk, to, talk about behavior change because it suggests that we're kind of badly behaved. People are simply responding to the sort of the environment. I think in, in academic literature, literature, they call it the choice architecture. So, for example, you know, I moved back to Ireland a couple of years ago with my, with my young family and you know, we're trying to buy a house. My preference would have been to buy a kind of a, a compact, you know, if energy efficient house within walking or cycling distance of, of my work where we could, you know, walk the kids to creche and to, to primary school and, you know, and take public transport to see my parents or whatever. But because um, because of the legacy of the Irish housing situation, we ended up buying a one off house in the countryside and having two cars. So, you know, I think, uh, you know, uh, can be accused of being a, a climate criminal. We we do have an electric car, which is which is great. Um, but it's you know it's 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 about uh not just people choosing sort of you know individual behavior change. It's about the system that creates that choice architecture that people um uh, respond to. So it's about building practices. It's about you know dense urban settlements. It's about what jobs people choose to uh, to work in. Um and you know where they choose to to uh to holiday. Um, you know, whether people have time to to think about waste or think about, you know, um, kind of low consumption living and things like that. So I, I think we do need to talk without kind of shaming people, um, without kind of flight shaming or, you know, car shaming people. It's, uh, it, it is, it, it, it's, it, I think it's important to have a public discourse about, you know, can we continue on this uh, kind of path of, infinite growth in our consumption you know it's it has an infinite it'll have a continually compounding um impact on the environment on climate uh, and is it necessary you know I, I don't think so so definitely and do you think people would be more inclined to change their behaviors if the general debates in public forums was a, a true framing of these often difficult new changes that are being brought about in order to help meet our climate goals. And instead of pitching that against a counterfactual of continuing as if nothing is wrong and live like we have done for the last 50 years, it, it, the, the new changes are pitched against the actual alternative option, which is runaway climate breakdown and uh, you know making organized society difficult possibly within our lifetimes. So, an honest an honest yeah. framing of it's it's these tough changes voluntarily now um or if we don't it's it's you know incredibly disruptive changes forced upon us in the near future rather than as is often framed it's these tough changes versus no tough changes in which yeah, case everyone I mean, just goes that, that for the no tough changes absolutely option. true um and i mean there um there's this funny cartoon um that that i that 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 i enjoyed that's like a cartoon of a climate conference and there's a whole list of the kind of co-benefits of climate action you know clean air healthy streets better ecosystems you know um uh better communities and so on 
and then someone from the audience is um yeah, that that's that those that list is up on the screen of, of someone giving a big presentation and then someone from the audience says um you know what if climate change is just a hoax and we're making the world a better place for nothing <laughs> you know i think a lot of a lot of the changes that are required like that that could be required in terms of the structural changes to to lower our energy demand and our material consumption um it doesn't have to mean suffering it it doesn't mean suffering you know it it doesn't mean sort of going back to living in caves um or turning the heat down on your granny at you know in the winter you know into making her cold many of these these you know it was there's an assumption that the status quo is optimal and any deviation from the status quo is is um is 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 causing suffering or or people uh, uh, to be unhappy. And I suppose that's a reflection often of the orthodox economic models that underpin um uh public policy making is that you know that there's an assumption that we're already at the equilibrium, and and that people have chosen how we live our lives because we're somehow all you know optimizing our individual utility function is the kind of jargon I suppose. Um, but you know that 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 um you know you just need to take take a step back and and see how that how that we're really organizing things is extremely inefficient you know having everybody in you know in in isolated houses you know spread around the countryside each each adult having to have their own car um not having enough time to suppose, think about their diet or or whatever and and being kind of bombarded with marketing um that makes them think that that i suppose consuming have the latest thing is is necessary to sort of be happy or to have social status you know those are all sort of relatively modern inventions you know <laughs> and um and you know i think i think whether we need you know and 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 a reflection of a fairly modern society so that's one thing uh and but but there's another element to your question about whether like um if if i if i understood you correctly um whether people will buy into to making these changes in order you know because because climate change is, is is happening and that we need to be honest about the impacts of climate change um and and i fully agree that that i think what we're really lacking is a big public um understanding of both the uh, the the, science, the basic science of climate change you know what what is happening like what is happening what are greenhouse gases where they come from and what, uh, how they're causing climate change what the impacts of climate change are so really you know linking in the media all these stories about drought famine uh, and heat waves um to greenhouse gases and what's causing them and then also the third element of that is what the solutions are um you know which is simply technology so low carbon technologies efficiencies and demand reduction and i think unless people can put those three things in their mind together um we won't have that proper kind of buy in so people kind of talk about oh electric cars you know but they're bad you know what what energy are they consuming you know and you know electric cars they're not an ideal solution over their lifetime they consume or they emit less than half of the co2 of a, of a regular car when you account for the production of batteries and so on so they're not a perfect solution but they're be- you know they're 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 not um they're they're the only solution for for decarbonizing a certain portion of transport so i think we can't rule uh things like that out um but yeah i think i think back to the original question about whether we need to focus on demand as well as supply Someone made a very good point. Um, uh, someone I follow on Twitter made the very good point that often environmental movements have focused on limiting things, so kind of stop pollution, stop deforestation, you know, st- stop the bad things, and often the climate movement is focused on you know stopping fossil fuel extraction, 
you know, stop building fossil fuel infrastructure, which is definitely one very important part of the of the puzzle. You know, keep it in the ground and looking at the companies that are extracting fossil fuels. Um, but there's there's two things that 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 I think in addition that we need to that it's it's also to focus on building the low carbon infrastructure, building the 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 low carbon kind of the the, the transition, and that includes for me alternative food, alternative meat. You know, uh, lab grown meat for 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 in the food system. Uh, you know, it includes, you know, innovations in hydrogen, in um, in battery technology and so on. It has to be quite high tech. Uh, but then also looking at uh, individual consumption. And I suppose climate activists are, are less kind of um, uh, kind of focused on individual sort of accusing individuals. But I think, as I said, it's all it's all it's all important. Sorry, that was an extremely long-winded answer. <laughs> no, there's, there's so much in that that I want to pick up on. So, for example, in the UK, they're really, um, they're quite strong in this. You know, everyone turned down their boiler by you know one or two degrees, and that would have a profound effect. But it is still focused on people's behaviour. Just to juxtaposition that to, as you say, data centres, they're hugely consuming. But what are they consuming? And, and I think you're right, there needs to be part of the messaging and then just to go back to the messaging you're saying like and as you're an excellent follow on on twitter for anyone uh, listening but um you're very active on it should should where do we go with messaging should we you know avoid climate doom versus reality versus optimism is there a, a best path forward there and <laughs> does that fluctuate <laughs> is that shifting sounds oh i struggle i struggle with that myself you know um I saw, yeah, on, on the news this morning, them announcing the the um, uh, a new runway being opened in Dublin Airport, mm. and someone commenting on it that you know that wasn't yeah that 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 this was the decision on this was 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 made the same year that we declared a climate emergency, um, and at the same time there's been no like there's been no significant public transport infrastructure in that time as well, you know, so we're just dithering on on the metro you know, and, and on bus connects, but somehow we can build a new airport runway in three years, you know, you know, uh, it's, it just like, and this just made me, um, I just had to sort of look out the window and do some deep breaths when I, when I was just following all this, because I think it just shows what a huge disconnect there is between, you know, this summer of, you know, half of Europe is experiencing drought at the moment. It's, I think, a once in 500 year event or something like that. Um, you know, these major, these world's major rivers are going dry, and still, you know, and 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 it, politicians and and leaders are playing lip service to to the need to decarbonize. They acknowledge the need to address this, but really not going down to the actions that are necessary. You know, to stop building, stop expanding airports, um, roads, and um, and and energy consuming things. So, so, but your question was about doom and and everything. And I think, um, you know, it's 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 it is a struggle among people who really get it. Um, I'm sure you're the same. Um. You know, uh, it's 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 also I think really important not to kind of say because we are going to cross the one point five degree threshold at least temporarily within the next few years, and I think there's a big sense among younger people as well that it, there is doom and I mean when you can when you see things like that with airport expansion happening at the same time as as you know big climate extremes uh, records being being broken, I mean how can you not feel doomed? <laughs> But I think it's always important to emphasize that that every um that I think the the IPCC kind of mantra when they released the um the the one point five degree report a number of years ago is that every bit of warming matters and every action matters every choice matters 
So it's not like once we pass that one five one point five degree or even two degree threshold that like all is lost. It's 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 you know, and and the second piece of that puzzle I think is to understand that with CO two the greenhouse gas from um uh, mainly from fossil fuels burning is that it's permanent. Once you burn it, it stays in the atmosphere for um hundreds or thousands of years. So it's not like I, you know, I can burn it now and we can just get to zero in twenty fifty. Every choice from now on matters. And yeah, there's a historical responsibility as well. Um, so I think I think it's it's important to frame that like it, you know, it's all is not lost, but it's also to be real to be realistic that um, you know, climate change climate change has happened, it's happening, uh, we're already seeing the consequences and we're not going to solve it. Um, you know, it's it's about I think probably there's there's probably a good analogy in in medicine that you would that you that you, you would think of something like a, a chronic illness that, that you will only like i don't know diabetes or something that you can only manage or not that we, we will uh, and, and that we have to get to that stage well that's um it's, it's really reassuring actually Hannah, just to hear um the human aspect of that that you have to go to the window and take your deep breaths and some of your articles relate to you know that you're a parent and that um you know like yes you're a house and you know this kind of thing that um the, the day-to-day realities we all face but at the same time you're um an academic as you know attached to an academic institution so the, this battleground sometimes seems to be a little bit unfair because you're left presenting sometimes in a very technical evidence base you know, water quality and air quality emissions they're incredibly technical when you get into the weeds and sometimes this is pitted against the very well-resourced formidable lobby groups who have these emotionally charged narratives which can be exhausting so what is the best tact here to, to engage is just to keep chipping away or hope that evidence will speak for itself and policymakers will listen to uh, this evidence yeah I, I think um sometimes i think as an academic so i've you know, i've tenure i have kind of you know i free reign on what i can say basically and most other people who are active in in this in this space um don't have that luxury so they they work for an organization and they speak for the organization and they 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 somehow have to you know that they they're not as as free to sort of um i suppose stick their neck out a bit so you know so one of the things that motivates me to um um to be maybe a bit more outspoken <laughs> than is wise for my for my sanity maybe uh is 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 that if if not me then who you know in in you know if a professor in energy in sustainable energy isn't isn't sort of um kind of pointing out these contradictions in in public life that then then who so and I'm, I'm very privileged to have that um um that kind of um platform you know i've got column in the irish times and um and I, and I I do a lot of um I like I chat a lot with with uh, journalists kind of just just on background as well to give them some just background information so like I see I see it as part of my job really uh, you know I suppose you know the, the traditional job of a, of a of an academic is is you know lecturing undergrads postgraduates and capacity building but also that there's an essential component of of um of capacity building of of journalists, of uh, politicians, of um, you know, leaders and so on who 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 want to know the facts but maybe maybe can't can't resource that. So I know that a lot of people who are kind of as I said work in these organizations they can't necessarily you know they they tell me that they <laughs> what what they think kind of in private but they can't necessarily be public mm, about it. Yeah, um, so. so 
And I think by like when when some individuals do kind of go out on a limb, it gives kind of more protection for other people to to also um uh, to 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 say what they think, um and and it's comforting for me to see more and more voices um like that uh come out and and kind of point out uh where certain lobby groups um uh, are are kind of misinforming the the public or um or kind of muddying the waters on climate science. Um, yeah, my, my, uh, you know, I, one of the, one of the, the, the topics, um, the, the climate science or the climate policy topics over the last number of months was the adoption of the sectoral carbon budget ceilings. I've never seen so much media focus, uh, media attention or kind of contentious, um, kind of coverage of, of a climate policy topic. Uh, and this was because it was political, I suppose, not just about, about climate change. So this was really what what target would the agriculture sector um, be given um, kind of vis-a-vis the other sectors. And, you know, I, I've my, my kind of main academic focus is looking at energy systems modeling. So what scenarios for um, electricity, industry, heat and transport um, in terms of energy demand and technologies can can can. Um, uh, can make carbon budgets add up and kind of what, what the research that we've done over the last year which has helped in, inform the climate change advisory council and the department of, of environment and climate um kind of inform their deliberations on, on carbon budgets uh has been to model the impact of of what a bigger or lower kind of target for the uh for the agriculture sector would be so for example uh our our 2030 target and this is this is sort of not really related to carbon budgets but no, I can go back to that, but basically our, 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 where we need to land on approximately in 2030 is a 51% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. Now, the agriculture sector represents 37% of all of our emissions. So if they have, an, so if they have a much lower than 51% target, that means everything else has to decarbonize a lot faster. So we've done all these scenarios to look at, you know, what if the agriculture sector does, you know, 20, 30, 40% and that, what, what the remaining carbon budget is left for, for everybody else. And what we see is that, you know, as, as the agriculture sector does less and less, the, the kind of changes, um, both in terms of demand and technology, become extremely radical for the energy system. You're talking about the uh, energy system reducing emissions by 60, 70, even 75 percent. You know, even 50 percent has never happened outside of economic collapse. 50 percent is, is the minimum of what, what's necessary, but it is extraordinarily difficult so the kind of communications that we we were kind of doing, and I did some interviews to say that, and and I put out a blog that said that, um, you know, the if the agriculture sector does much less than thirty percent, it really puts the whole feasibility of the carbon budgets in question. And I don't like using the word feasibility as well because you know I think our response to the COVID nineteen pandemic kind of blows any notion of what is feasible out of the water. Um, but it's about what is cost effective, uh, what is fair, um, and um, as as well as what's feasible. Um, but then there was a lot of strong pushback from the agriculture lobby group. You know, I was asked as a peer reviewed <laughs> things like this, um, which which was which I found to be quite um, mm. interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it's such a um, crucial point this in Ireland and the the need to reduce. Um, things like agricultural emissions rapidly is just colliding head on with these lobbyists from those groups who purport to represent the interests of you know the small family farms as they like saying in Ireland and and perhaps they do but how much do you get a sense that they're they're actually 
just kind of exercising predatory delay that they they recognize things are going to have to change but they want to keep the status quo going for as long as possible to make as much money as possible in the interim versus yeah. genuine interest because if they genuinely had the interest of small farmers they would look at the droughts happening across europe and realize that if that happens every year farming's not viable so i feel like they're disingenuous but i'm not sure if i'm doing them a disservice absolutely no i i think you you hit the nail on the head there like the, the 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 discourse is not on what is in the interest of farmers here. It is on preserving the status quo, um, and how they're doing that is using these strategies of delay and denial and fear. Fe- was it fear, uncertainty, and doubt? That's that's one of these these uh, kind of classic tactics. Um, they're muddying the waters on climate science. So, for example, and and frankly, it's not just the lobby groups. I mean, you you hear um, some sympathetic po- politicians echoing all of these. Um, these mantras, for example, we started to hear this this um this phrase that Ireland is one of the most sustainable food producers in the world, um and I just think that's an astounding claim. I mean, first of all, there's no evidence to say that, and second of all, we we specialize in producing the most carbon intensive food products. Beef, lamb, and dairy are the most carbon intensive, nutrient efficient, uh, you know, in- inefficient, land inefficient ways of producing food. Now we do produce top quality food, and there's no doubt about that. But we're certainly not feeding the world with with you know premium beef and and yogurt and so on. We're not we're not feeding hungry people. Uh, we kind of export food to rich countries. So this this kind of narrative that we're like a sustainable food producer and that we're contributing to food security um is is extremely disingenuous and you know history will not look kindly upon these these people trying to um cast doubt on on the climate science of, of these things you know it 2030 is just a milestone on the way to net zero emissions so that this transition is inevitable there won't be technology solutions that will kind of reduce the impact of a cow to zero um but at the same time a lot of farmers genuinely have been led to believe that they're that they have an environmentally benign practice it's not true and unfortunately often pointing that out is seen as scapegoating farmers or you know villainizing farmers and that is another tactic to to kind of pit environmentalists or people like me against farmers that's that's not true um being honest about these things um is is a prerequisite for action and i feel like the the reason that a lot of the discourse is still on at the agriculture sector is because those fundamental questions about the about the the climate impact of the of the of the practices is still not accepted or still questioned you know no sector is on the right path we're kind of we're not seeing enough enough action in any sector but but at least we're not questioning the science <laughs> in in other sectors you know what one of the things i've read recently that explained to me people's lack of movement on this most clearly is this concept of I'd heard about stranded assets in the context of, you know, fossil fuel industries, obviously their very existence and their continuing profit depends on their to continue to extract and burn fossil fuels. So you can see why they would want to keep doing it, even if it means everyone else, including themselves, are suffering. But that extends so much further in this concept of kind of stranded expertise and basically anyone whose career or whose livelihood or whose family or whose knowledge base or whose future career progression is built around the society that we have lived in for the last 50 years mm-hmm. wants to keep it like that and everyone else mm-hmm. wants to move it rapidly forward to a new society where we can actually live sustainably and, and not 
usher in climate breakdown. So there's this tension between kind of what's been termed fast actors, people who want to move fast on this, um, and then the people who are slow actors and who who want to delay and who want to just keep it keep their existence and their expertise alive for as long as possible. And that's such a such a profound uh, kind of central identity to them that you can see why it ushers in such in, in incredible levels of climate denial or, or cognitive dissidence or just, you know, they've got such a deep interest in keeping the existing way of life the same. And I think that applies a lot to farming in Ireland. You know, it's, it's hard to envision a, a future for Irish farming. There is one that's completely not, not based on beef and dairy, but it's hard to see it, you know, for the farmers and they need help to, to envision what their future life will be like, I think. That's a very that's a very interesting way of framing it, and I think again I w- I wouldn't sort of necessarily demonize the people who want to to keep their way of life. You know, the the, the same um could be said of peat workers. You know, as as Bordemona was was being um kind of transformed away from peat, uh, and this is where this notion of a just transition is is essential. Um, so to identify those parts of society that will lose out from um you know the sustainable transition because there are parts of society that need to be wound down, uh, at least to an extent. Um, you know, there are some jobs that will become obsolete and it's really important to plan for that and be upfront about it and and to make sure that we're, as you said, not locking future sort of, you know, uh, employees or people's skills into, into an unsustainable sort of um, uh, business. I will say that I'm kind of more optimistic about farming. So, so the, the characteristics of the greenhouse gas emissions from, from farming are that, you know, methane emissions don't need to go to zero. Uh, so when I was talking about net zero earlier on, um, it's a bit more complex than that because methane emissions do need to fall rapidly. So they need to fall globally by about half by 2030, uh, sorry, by 2050, um, because they have a short timeline, then the warming impact of the historical emissions um, kind of is reduced, which which is a great opportunity. So, you know, we, do, we don't need to go to zero cows um, uh, by, by 20, by 2030 or, or 2050. So, but, but we do need to have it in, in <coughs> sorry, have the number of cows in a, in a much um, kind of more balanced fashion. We need to look at how we use land for food production uh, as a carbon sink and as a source of biodiversity. Now, the question about whether, <coughs> sorry, the, the, the grass-based model of production will still be viable by 2050, given uh, droughts and climate change. So whether the, the kind of the, the, um, uh, the, the model will still be viable is, is, question, is questionable. I'm, I'm not an expert in this. I don't, I don't know, but it's certainly something that has to be prepared for. Yeah. Do you, do you see a lot of, um, in businesses and in, in industry and even in government, do you recognize a lot of this concept called triangulation where companies or governments kind of acknowledge uh, openly a very ambitious target, um, for example, net zero by 2050, and then they make small changes that absolutely will not get us there, but then they point to those small changes as evidence that they're on the path to net zero and kind of triangulate that circle. So it's, it's a way of not actually doing anything, but telling company shareholders or general public or whoever the target is, look at these changes we've made, look at our stated lofty ambitions, therefore we're on the right track. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's sorry. Yeah, it's it's a it's an expression that I haven't come across before, but it's it's a it's a nice one. Um, but it the the um, <coughs> sorry, 
the um the practice is something that's certainly very very familiar so you know Ireland has been very good at, at setting ambitious targets uh, and and very poor at delivering at delivering on those and you know right now if we look at you know we've we've set one of the most ambitious decarbonization targets for 2030 in the world um but there's still not a roadmap of how to get there and still no roadmap of how to get to 2050 as well um because it's much easier to set targets than than to than to actually deliver them in now in one sense i have kind of sympathy with with the approach that was taken you know with the green party and government um kind of negotiating uh, carbon budgets and a target without necessarily making a plan making a plan about how to get there first in a sense um you know they, they are aligning what is necessary with the paris agreement commitment and then once we've we have a great one now that that is in law carbon budgets are in law then we'll figure out how to get there that is a risky strategy because you know i don't think it has really been acknowledged to the public um what are the big changes that are necessary not just to the public but industry as well um and and also that the uh, public institutions and the state bodies uh, are whether they're equipped to to really see that transformative change you know people who are you know tasked with with planning with building roads with education uh with uh you know regulating the electricity sector with with buildings these are all you know requires a huge amount of reskilling um and and upskilling um among the public sector so I suppose that the approach that we've taken in Ireland at a policy level, I suppose, can be contrasted with um, uh, the the American situation. So in the last number of weeks, the IRA, which is a, sort of an unfortunate acronym for an Irish person, um, an inflation reduction in the inflation reduction act, I think it is uh, basically uh, kind of is a fully costed kind of action plan to decarbonize. I can't remember what is the 2030, I think it's 30 or 40 percent reduction in CO2 emissions. So it's a less ambitious sort of decarbonization target, but it's fully costed plan, you know, it's so all of Congress and, you know, has, has, has um, you know, has bought into this. And uh, but we're not that there yet with actually deciding what the policies are. Uh, you, know, you also asked about businesses and industry and so on. And I, I've worked less um, with with industry. So uh, I'm not the right person to ask about that, but I, <laughs> from the impression that I get is that kind of incrementalism, you know, net zero by 2050 is is really easy to commit to because, you know, CEO is going to be well retired or, or not even alive by that time. Um, and it gives this feel good factor. It is. But as I said, you know, it's about it's about that every bit of warming matters. Um, every action kind of from today matters. And, and we're not there yet, really. <laughs> It's kind of it kind of speaks to um, the chimes with um, one of your recent articles about uh, your work as a, a modeler a model not the Vogue type as you, as you stated yeah, yeah. you said that you were um, like modeling which can people can, people can people can get lost in what modeling is and it's highly technical but you really described it as um, navigation to your destination and um, uh, do you look upon those uh ceiling targets and some of our commitments is okay maybe not quite good enough if you pair it up to the evidence but it's part of the path forward and it's more ambitious than we've ever been and we're now talking about these things and um do you, do you feel like modeling now has a more important role in establishing that roadmap yeah definitely and and i don't want to downplay that the importance of setting ambitious targets you know 
John F. Kennedy said, you know, we're going to get to the moon. You know, we're going to do this because it's hard, not because it's easy. And, you know, I'm not going to, we haven't figured out how much it will cost or how to do it yet, but we're going to go to the moon. And so, you know, this, this, uh, th- these decarbonization targets are, are something like a moonshot. And they are a sort of a guiding principle now for, for policy. And, and every sector has fairly kind of strict reporting requirements and climate action plan development. Now it is, it is kind of slowly gaining momentum and, and you can see a lot of positive development in, in that. So, um, so it's just what I'm said, kind of don't downplay the importance of setting those really ambitious targets that are in line with climate science. Um, and, and they, they can kind of frame all of the public discourse and, um, as well as 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 policy making, um, but the role of modeling um is is really interesting for me. So yeah, that's I suppose my main academic discipline is is this energy systems modeling, and in that article, to recap a little bit, um, you know, it tries to explain kind of in simple terms what is a model. So I suppose if the if if the analogy for um you know setting the ambitious target is something like we're all going to climb um a mountain that's never been climbed before. You know, we're all going to get to the top of that mountain um, within the next year. Modeling is something like gathering. It's something like a map um, where you gather your best evidence about the, the terrain ahead. In this case, it is the energy system. What are the technologies and energy demands and constraints on the adoption of, 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 of those technologies? Um, and it's, it's about and, and the map is kind of used to generate these scenarios um, to, to enable decision makers and stakeholders to kind of sit around a table together and say, okay, you know, can we achieve this scenario? And do we need to uh, kind of find out more information about this part of the map? Or do we need to, you know, do we have the right tools um, in order to reach the, you know, the, the, the goal? So the, so, so the map is, is an imperfect reflection of the terrain. You know, it is, it is necessarily a simplification, just like a model. And every model is, you know, there's a, there's a, famous aphorism that all models are wrong but some are useful so it's necessarily a simplification and it's also often very easy to kind of use a model some scenarios from a model to to um kind of call them projections or say oh the model says no it's impossible you know <laughs> um it's it's a little it's a bit too, so that the whole practice of modeling um is is really important as well as the model itself you know how open you are to yeah so for example um one of the main kind of developments we had in my research team over the last year or two was was retooling this big energy system model that that had that, that had been developed at UCC um kind of under the leadership of professor Bruno Gallacore uh, and basically you know the, the energy landscape the policy landscape and i suppose the um and the software itself has developed an awful lot so we basically wanted to if 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 we had modeled this challenge with the old model, the the you know net zero and the fifty percent challenge, uh, model would have just said no, you know. <laughs> so we had to kind of figure out uh, you know what are the transformative changes that that w- the model is not able to to capture. So so for example, the analogy with the map of the mountain would have been that you know that just the path is impossible, you know that there's there's no viable path to get to the top of the mountain. But we had to um you know we retooled this model and we made it open source as well we kind of threw through open the hood we published a documentation paper and done an awful lot of engagement about about what goes into the model um and and it has been very very invaluable uh, just for reference it's called the times ireland model of tim um so tim is an important member of our team <laughs> and um so it's, it was very important for the climate change advisory council for example 
to see that there are feasible, challenging but feasible pathways for the energy system to meet um, to meet the decarbonisation tools, and that gave some confidence to you know to to to, to recommend um, uh, carbon budgets as they are. Without the Climate Council, wasn't prescriptive on what the targets for sectors should be, but we looked at a range of scenarios that showed you know various levels of of cost and feasibility. Um, you know, and then there's models of the electricity system. So, you know, AirGrid have an um, annual modeling exercise um, that underpins what they call the generation capacity statement that has for the past uh, at least five years pointed to the problems of um, data center growth and under investment in capacity for. So that model was used to to kind of sound these alarm warnings about about um, uh, about the shortfall in electricity supply this year. Um, but we've also got models of, you know, the road network uh, built by Transport Infrastructure Ireland um, that look at the impact of, you know, building um, um, building new roads or new public transport infrastructure. I mean, what, what I think two things are really important. These models really underpin a lot of um, public decision making. Also, the ESRI run economic models. It's really important that there's trust in these models, that they're that they're transparent and somehow try to explain to, to the public and to stakeholders what they entail. But also that they're that 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 the models are capable of envisaging the kind of transformation that's required. So, for example, you know, if the if the if the road model says that you know, oh, we can't pedestrianize the street because there would be traffic chaos. You know, I think we need to like understand why the model says that, and and is it you know is it just calibrated to to kind of trends of the past, or is there some way that we can uh, kind of change parameters um you know and change the reality as well change change the kind of physical environment to uh, so that it's not a barrier to action you know well that's what i was going to ask can health take a leadership role here to say well um okay there'll be traffic chaos but actually every mode of transport you take that moves you away from a car has um you know well-documented health gain um Long term and short term, and then for like you know get into air pollution and you know frailty, long you know longevity, all of those things. So that there's um, um, you know sometimes that gets it's drowned out or it's lost or it's not understood that there's a health gain to some of these um uh, positives. Yeah, absolutely, and I you know some of the kind of most interesting. Uh, modeling work that we do is is at the intersection of different modeling types or different disciplines and it's it's challenging because we all each discipline has different language or different understanding of of the kind of landscape but it's it's very very powerful so you know i was at london i was in ucl in london and we um we <clears throat> kind of matched uh the energy systems model with an air pollution model to show the co-benefits of of um of looking because you know it 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 then it then shows how you know how the the, the so-called cost of some measures is much uh, lower when you uh, kind of account for these co-benefits of active travel of health um, and of lower air pollution um the same with the international energy agency we looked at you know so air pollution from energy combustion as you i'm sure you know is is one of the main kind of sources of mortality especially in developing countries both from household combustion of solid fuels um because of poor energy access uh because people have kerosene lamps or cooking on solid fuels or else in urban environments from kind of poorly regulated um engines or industry 
Um, and so, you know, I think there was some studies that showed that in, in, in many contexts, the transition to cleaner fuels um, <coughs> uh, brings kind of net benefits without even considering any climate related effects. And I'm not aware of any research that's been done for Ireland on that, but I think it's important to kind of show people that, you know, for example, that there was a, such a contentious discourse on ending peat combustion and in our model, uh, ending peat sales, and in our model, uh, or sorry, turf, I should say, um, it's it's the first thing that that, that the model suggests should should go is 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 turf. <coughs> sorry, I'm getting an, an itchy throat. Um, but um, when you account for those those poor uh, the poor air quality as a result of turf, it it, it brings huge huge uh, huge benefits. But we haven't done that yet, and I think it would be great yeah, to do it. Yeah. Great to do it. I think I think that's where we need a bit more political courage. You know, you likened um, the solving the climate crisis or or at least addressing it as best we can to climbing an unclimbed mountain or reaching the moon and, and possibly or probably it's going to be even harder. Um, and as you said, people in the past have taken a, a strong leadership stance and, and kind of given the vision to people who might not be as informed or might not have time to weigh up all the arguments and said, you know, this is where we have to go and this is what we're going to do. Um, and I, I, we're not going to listen um, to the people who are saying that's objecting to this, that or the other. We just we just got to get it done. Do you think that's lacking a bit in Ireland? And would you like to see the politicians take more of a strong kind of charge of, of our transition to net zero? Yes. Uh, I mean, I, th I think like I've been fairly impressed with with Micheál Martin um, as, as Taoiseach. I mean, he's been quite strong on the like on, 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 on climate in his statements saying um, that really a transformation is necessary and it's a really important issue. And it took a lot of political bravery to put that 51 percent target into law. Um, so I think, you know, we, we have to give credit where credit is due. Um, and, and that was that that will have major consequences. Um, what we're struggling with at the moment is uh, kind of getting buy into those to the to you know to, to the sort of nitty gritty changes that are necessary. I've put a tweet out there a few weeks a few a few you know, last week, and sometimes I I just like to be somewhat provocative, and I said that like the, with with electric cars now coming on that are um that have you know four or five hundred kilometer range that are much cheaper than the typical car new car that's bought. Um, you know what? Why aren't we uh, phasing out um, all internal combustion engines within the next two or three years? You know, it, like it kind of makes sense rationally, but they had enormous pushback. People were saying, you know, I I I can't have an electric car, and you know, but what are electric cars powered from? You know, I th I think, but but phasing like ending new car sales in the next couple of years is one of those things. Uh, sorry, new new um, fossil fuel car sales is one of those things that that's going to be necessary to meet these hugely ambitious targets, and we're not yet seeing that sort of political courage to to um to say no climate change is so urgent that yes we're going to inconvenience you a little bit or maybe push you into some com comfort zone um you know it's i think we we're not going to be able to get universal buy in to every every measure and that's but i think politicians may be underestimating their ability to influence the public as well you know, in, in, in COVID, if we had done sort of a public consultation to say, should we, you know, um, should we shut down society basically to, to stop the spread? You know, and if the politicians didn't have the political bravery to say, no, we know 
the science, we know the consequences, and this is like the, the, these these travel restrictions are necessary to stop the spread and to protect people's lives. You know, if they didn't have that kind of bravery, um, it wouldn't have happened. And you know, I think that's that's a reasonable model. Now, I mean, I, I'm not a COVID expert or anything, but but you know, you can see that there was a huge amount of political bravery uh, in our response to the COVID nineteen pandemic. There was also a sense that we're all in it together. Ireland actually has Irish people have a lot of faith in institutions and a lot more trust in politicians than um, than in other countries. And I think you know, if if more politicians were honest and upfront, um, and and there's many politicians who are very very good. Um, but they need to go beyond saying just saying that climate change is a problem. They need to go on and say, combust, you know, using fossil fuels is a problem. Um, you know, intensifying our agriculture sector is a problem. You know, um, that the state of our environment is a problem as well. Um, you know what I mean? Well, maybe, maybe do we we all need to have a little bit more of that political leadership? You've certainly shown it yourself. Yes, and absolutely. And I wanted to say as well, it's not just about politicians. They're just one part of the of the uh, of the sort of, of of the problem. I think you know, everybody's unique in what kind of influence they have in their organization or in their communities or in their lives. But I think the more that we kind of ha- can have these conversations with the people around us, um, in our workplaces, in our families, um, you know, and and um and, and you know and and to say. And, and to say what they really think and feel. And I'm increasingly having these conversations. They're sometimes difficult, um, you know, with people around. But but I think people are, um, you know, every individual uh, has a role to play here. Every organization has a role to play here. It's not just, you know, organizations are just made of individuals and politicians are very guided by by what the public think and what the media are reporting. So absolutely, I think more more bravery and honesty from everybody is is um, is necessary. Like some of the um the debates there are seeming well sometimes a bit toxic and they really I thought informed everyone um much better and you mentioned you know new gas terminals um and there's a discomfort there but I often feel like now we're making progress if we're if it feels a little bit uncomfortable now we're at the the cool face pardon the pun um and and this is where that's we're not it's not under the bed anymore and we're kind of moving forward. Um, so just finally, you know, the, I suppose the Irish Doctors for the Environment are um, an advocacy group and we want to see a little bit more. Um, do you think healthcare can take more of a leadership role, not not just groups like ourselves, but, um, you know, the, the GP in a rural community or the, um, the hospital consultant or the, the, you know, nurse practitioner who's taking a clinic? Um, do, you, do you see a role um, for healthcare to step forward a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, like like academics and scientists, people really trust doctors. Um, so doctors have a and, and and healthcare practitioners have a very important role, both as being figureheads of change themselves. So living their lives in a way that they kind of they see consistent with, I suppose, the their, their feelings about climate change, but also in their in their role in informing people about about maybe the health consequences. Now, I haven't I haven't thought about it that much in in that way, but. Um, you know, it's it's. Yeah, I'd I'd have to think about it a bit more in terms of 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 what advice I suppose people can give individuals in terms of health. Um, but but I think people um, people trust doctors and and so on. If if I if I, if I can just go back to one thing that I said or that you said uh, about about gas. Sorry to sort of yeah. break the flow, but yeah. I I I'm I I think that it's gas fired power generation 
extra capacity that's necessary, not new LNG import capacity. So this is an important <laughs> distinction between those things, just yeah, in case it yeah. gets picked up wrong, because it has been picked up wrong before. Um, but I'd yeah. be I'd be interested to talk to you about how, how you see kind of uh, doctors in their in their practices kind of bring helping to inform the public or bring about these changes. I think it's huge. Um, untapped, you know, the patient contacts, the longitudinal relationship you have. They um, and you can talk about transport, diet. I don't know if you can wander into whether your patients holiday in in Europe or America, you know, but but there I think there is um an opportunity there. And I suppose that's what we want to maybe finally ask you. You you've learned a lot um uh in your academic and your family career. You've kind of talked about both of those, but are there things that can inform new organizations such as our doctors for the environment that we don't um make mistakes like being uh, you know uh, preachy or not accept modicums of moderation or what what lessons can um Irish doctors environment learn from from Hannah Daly specifically going forward <laughs> oh god I don't know <laughs> I don't I don't see myself as that I will I mean like maybe um like and this relates to to my answer to to your last question is is what can 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 the healthcare profession do one thing is that you're you're a kind of a large energy user large sort of sector in society have a lot of procurement power and for example to set um a goal of, of for the hsc and in like and in the health sector to uh, decarbonize as quickly as possible so to get off fossil fuels um for, for as 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 quickly as possible in hospitals and in in surgeries um you know to to install solar panels and to decarbonize transport as much as possible to to sort of set that target yourselves and to figure out how you can how you can achieve that, and then that way you can both decarbonize yourselves, but also be a be a, um, a, a sort of a, an example um, for um, for the rest of for other sectors. Well, funny you should mention that we're actually involved uh, in the different working groups for the HSC, working on um, decarbonizing the healthcare system and the HSC's general strategy towards um, a sustainable future. So, um, watch watch the space. Thank you so much for your time, Hannah. It's been a really uh, wonderful conversation and learned a huge amount. It's been so great to have you on. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thank you so much, Hannah. Thank you. Bye-bye now.